The income tax hike prevails. Paula Brooks leaves the neighborhood to run for Congress and Ted's excellent fundraising. These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Joe Hallett, Senior Editor, the Columbus Dispatch. Emily Reamer, Statehouse Reporter, ABC6, Fox 28. Terry Casey, Republican Strategist, and Michael Daniels, co-publisher of Outlook Magazine. Welcome to Columbus on the Record. After spending months trying to win it, city officials are now trying to figure out how to spend it. Columbus voters approved increasing the city's income tax to 2.5% this week, generating a projected $90 million to $100 million for next fiscal year. The vote was close, but not that close considering it was a tax hike issue. The yes votes beat the no votes by just more than 3,000 votes, 52% to 48%. It's the first time in 27 years Columbus voters have raised the income tax. Officials say the win eliminates the need for hundreds of layoffs and also cuts in services. Joe Hallett, was this vote an endorsement of the city's fiscal management or was it a good political campaign? Both. I think the uh, voters were convinced of the need. Uh, the city it does not come to them often for more money, and uh, they saw what the consequences were in terms of layoff and layoffs and reduced services, and they said, we'll pay more money. Uh, it was also a very good campaign. It was orchestrated or, or led behind the scenes by Greg Haas and a, a new wonder kid in campaign circles around here named Lee Roberts. He's only 23 years old. They very effectively targeted the message uh, to voters. There were, for instance, 12 different variations of a mailer, which went to 12 different areas of the city saying different things in Northland that focused on Morris Road. On the west side, it was health clinics. On the south side, it was fire protection. And the other thing they did was they made sure this was not a campaign about Mike Coleman. Uh, they kept him out of the ads, but he did over 70 neighborhood meetings, um, and so he, he campaigned very effectively about it. And there's one other point I want to make about this. Uh, in my humble opinion, I think Coleman acted very courageously in doing this. He put his own political capital on the line. Uh, he showed that even in the worst times, that voters will raise their taxes if they are convinced of the need Paling by comparison is Governor Strickland, who rather than put his political capital on the line with a Coleman-like campaign to convince Ohioans for, to raise their income taxes temporarily or sales taxes, he squandered his political capital on this uh, dubious uh, racetrack slots machine plan. Terry, you were a leading opponent to the income tax hike, but the, the opponents really didn't have an organized campaign like the mayor had. Was that the difference? Well, when you're outspent 1.1 million to zero, mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty easy to win. Clearly, if there'd have been a bigger turnout, and it's interesting that the Democrats in the Ohio House now want to outlaw these kind of special elections in August when you can try and sneak it by the voters. And yes, they did some innovative things, but I mean, localized brochures, John Kasich did that for Westerville or Bexley and that kind of thing way back in 1978 when he first ran for state senate. I mean, the big thing was the money difference, and we still have a big fiscal crisis at City Hall, 
and actually the new money they're going to get totals 125 million to 130 million because that you got to count the capital money the taxpayers of Columbus are going to have to pay for that new capital money that's going to be spent and in my opinion continue to be wasted at City Hall I, I think you're right I mean I think when you look at the total numbers that's what City Hall is going to take in but I think the number that they kept putting out there was money they were going to have to spend in the operating budget and so they took that 25 cents per dollar off the table is it going to come out of our pockets yes um, but I think they did a really nice job of countering, as, as I said, some of the things that um, the opposition was doing. We, we saw you and, some, and Ferris and some other people going on and saying, but what about the bridges? What about the columns? What about the you know, fancy sidewalks? Um, and I think they did a nice job of counteracting the fact that that money can't be moved around to pay salaries and buy squad cars. Ferris is a Republican candidate for city council coming in, in November. I think the other part of this, too, is, you know, now that they have approved it, I do think they ran a good campaign. And we were saying that voter turnout is higher than it usually is in special elections. But when you have 500,000 Columbus voters and only 89,000 of them vote, I mean, you have a lot of people out there that did not get engaged. And I think the challenge now is to prove to people that they will spend this money wisely and to engage the community in how that is spent. You look at a place like Southwestern City Schools, that community is completely divided. Here's and the, they need the to number. engage people. 7.6 of Columbus registered voters said yes to this tax. 7.6% said yes to $100 million in new revenue. I don't what does that say? An, I don't think it's an overwhelming endorsement of what the mayor plans and to do with this money. And you consider that for seven straight years we've had unbalanced city budgets spending more than what they take in, uh, the fiscal house of cards still exists at City Hall and the mayor's got a big problem between the Chamber of Commerce types that want a lot of money spent on business incentives and subsidies versus other labor unions versus the police and fire who can legitimately say if not for us as the face of the campaign you wouldn't have got the money. And I think that's a really important point that if going back and negotiating with various labor unions that have a, a piece of this I think that this really boosts the position of police and fire to say we put everybody who was off duty out on the street in a vote for issue one t-shirt and so now when it comes back, don't expect big concessions from us at the negotiating But they table. promised those concessions. And Mayor Coleman said in, to the dispatch this week, these reforms will take a couple of contracts. Contracts are three years. Generally, we're talking six years. I don't think Mayor Coleman's going to be mayor in six years. Members of this city council won't be around in six years. Will we see these major concessions? If you see the Easter Bunny, then you'll see those cuts. They won't do them. So how do, so how do, so are our memories that short as voters that will forget that or? Yes. Yeah. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> our, as, as pundits, our memories are really long. As yeah. voters, yes. yes. I'm not sure about that either. But, uh, <laughs> the impact on other cities. We talked to the city auditor in Bexley today, Larry Heiser. Bexley originally said was in published reports that they were going to do a Me Too tax and raise their income tax. They've gone the other way. They have been actively recruiting companies, small firms, law firms. They say they have a eight-person tech firm ready to leave the city of Columbus to come into Bexley because they're not going to raise their income tax. Are we going to see more of this? I think you're going to see lots more of it. In fact, one of the biggest communities to do it will be Westerville because Westerville's got a lot of prime real estate to develop for commercial purposes and they'd love to have that increased tax base. I think there'll be some interesting positions that the city of Columbus can take on that. For instance, the city of Columbus provides all the fire coverage for the city of Bexley. 
So if the city of Bexley plays that game and says, we're going to recruit all the business away, then I think the city of Columbus can go back and say, great, now you can pay for your fire department coverage. There's also cost, though, involved with moving. And I wonder if, you know, it's going to take a little while for people to crunch the numbers and say, is it worth it for us to put up all this capital to move here, to do this and that? And so I think, you know, maybe two years from now, we take a look back and we say, is this really and how it played out? easier for a two-person accounting exactly. firm or a four-person law firm than for an employer of 50 or 100. Right. Okay, our next topic, Congressman Pat Tiberi faces what could be his toughest challenge. Franklin County Commissioner Paula Brooks announced this week she will run for the 12th district seat. Brooks is in her second term on the Franklin County Commission. She considered running for Congress in the 15th district two years ago. The immediate problem Brooks faces is she still lives in the 15th district. Michael Daniels, the law says she doesn't have to live in the district. Right. All she has to do is live in the state. What are the voters going to say? Um, I, th I think that Brooks has a legitimate argument here. Unlike Shemansky, who I think <coughs> kind of got beaten up because he pretended. Shemansky ran, two, uh, four, ran years ago. four years ago. But he pretended that he lived in the district when he didn't. Um, I think that you know, Paula is being pretty upfront about the fact that I don't live in the district. But she also can legitimately say, as a Franklin County Commissioner, I already represent 60% of the people who do. I think she's saying, look, I'm, uh, what the press release I saw said, I'm, you know, I'm eight miles away from the district. I already represent 60% of the people there. Um, the question is going to be, can she convince people that she's more in touch with the needs of the voters of the 12th mm -hmm. than T-Berry is? Um, that that remains to be seen. I think she might have a valid argument there because you know like you said you know she's been elected county commissioner twice she already represents a good chunk of this district and she's here most of the time you know and I don't know how many I don't know Pat Tiberi's schedule but I know that most reps go back and forth a lot and if she's here every single day and has built up those relationships with those people I think that would be a huge asset in her column. I think it's a huge problem because people in Westerville and Delaware and Johnstown, all these communities, when you're from Upper Arlington, there's just something in most parts of the county that having given Upper Arlington another vote uh, in Congress just doesn't set well in most parts of the district. The problem's not going to be in the county. Mm -hmm. it, it, it never is. The problem for the Democrat in the 12th is never in Franklin County. It's in the outlying counties. It's in the King County, particularly I live in, in uh, Pat Tiberi's district in Westerville. And he's very popular there. She'll be the underdog. But this is a very shrewd move by her for a couple reasons. One is that even if she loses, uh, she could come back in two years when that district may very well be redrawn by Democrats to be favorable and run again at Or if Mary Jo Kilroy loses to Steve Stivers next, next year, uh, Paula Brooks could run against divers at two years hence. So she's she's establishing herself a couple of good options. What does this do to that Kilroy divers race? Does it hurt as far as money goes? It, it balances out because T Bear is going to need more money and Paula Brooks is going to be able to raise money. Does it does it hurt the local fund fund raising for these two? In candidates? some ways it does, but it also gives an opportunity for some people to look at Franklin County, and you can get two for the price of one because some of the issues of what Mary Jo did and Paula did as county commissioner can be wrapped around both of them. Both of them, you can wrap the whole Nancy Pelosi, Congress buying these half billion dollars in new private jets for them to fly around. Uh, it allows you to kind of package and again get two for one. So does Stivers want to run with T. Berry on a ticket? Does Paula Brooks want to run with Mary Jo Kilroy? Because they get along so well, right. do they want to run on the same ticket? There will be no <laughs> ticket running. Um, absolutely not. I think, I think Terry's right. I think there will be some uh, savvy 
advertising campaign people who pull Mary Jo's picture out of an ad and put Brooks's picture in an ad and talk about the same issues, and there may be some sharing like that across campaigns. Do I expect to see Stivers and Tberry holding hands at the same rally? No. Do I expect to see Brooks and Kilroy in the same room? No. Well, and, and I think part of it, in fact, Joe stole what was going to be my final prediction and what he talked about is the 2012 play because uh, Paula wanted to run against Congress for Congress in 08 and had to bitterly step aside. And it very well could be that if Mary Jo loses, and right now any Democrat running for Congress, the tensions are mounting and having to run with Nancy Pelosi and health care and all the other things is not an advantageous thing. It's not going to be 2008 all over again. And it's shrewd on Brooks' part because she's running from cover. Joe's exactly right. I, I don't see Stivers in, in running in tandem with Tberry because to the extent there are still negative coattails to George Bush, you can tie Tberry to them. He, you know, I, in my opinion, he's probably more conservative than the district overall. He voted for all of the Bush budgets and uh, the war and and uh, uh, she will probably make the case that everything that bad, uh, everything bad that has happened, Pat Tberry voted for. Is that, is that why she's running now? I mean, David Robinson ran against him in 2008. Who? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no name recognition, didn't have a whole lot of money. Paula Brooks is much, starts off at a much higher level. Did she see a weakness, Joe, in, in Pat Tberry from two years ago? She must have done some polling to think she has a shot anyway. Yeah, well, I think she sees the numbers. She's going to do very well in Franklin County because she represents 60%. Where she's going to be hurting is in Licking County particularly, which is far more Republican and conservative. But Paul Brooks is a conservative Democrat. She is, I don't think she's classified as a liberal. She may be more palatable to those uh, conservatives or at least conservative independents than uh, than Shemansky or others or Robertson. But Paul will have to mend some bridges with some of the liberal Democrats who were angry with her because she doesn't, didn't follow the whole union line on some things and there's been some other issues where she hasn't been a true believer. I'm not sure how much that's true because I think the extreme liberal faction of the Democratic Party in the 12th isn't anybody but Tberry faction at this point. So I'm not sure. She may have to, to make nice with some people, but I don't think that's going to cost her any votes. Okay. Our next topic, there are a couple of new developments in the 2010 race for governor. Despite his sinking popularity, Ted Strickland is raising a lot of money. In the first six months of this year, Strickland raised more than $2.5 million, while his GOP challenger, John Kasich, raised only about a half million dollars. Also in recent days, John Kasich backtracked a bit on his promise to eliminate the state income tax. He endorsed, kind of, expanded gambling. And just as the state prepares to expand the lottery to include slot machines, Ted Strickland's troubled lottery director has resigned. Terry Casey, first to the fundraising. Is this just the advantage of, a, an incumbent, the advantage of being the incumbent, or does John Kasich have something to worry about? Well, I think money raising is obviously important, but when you're an incumbent governor and you've spent three and two and a half years working at laying the groundwork, it's easier to raise a whole lot of money in six months compared to what John Kasich did in a month or two. One of the pluses John Kasich has in raising money, he has somewhat of a national constituency from people that have seen him on 
Fox TV. So he's not unknown if you're going to have a fundraiser in Florida or California, uh, the East Coast. So money raising will be important. I think the bigger problem for the governor is the national trend. Today's New York Times, I love quoting them, detailed how in both New Jersey and Virginia, Democrats have governors and have had them there for a while. Obama's going to spend a lot of time there. But in New Jersey alone, that mega millionaire governor is 14 points down, and the Democrat also trails in Virginia. So the trend line is not good in 2010. That's the bigger problem. So is it, Joe, is it just that Strickland has better name recognition than Ohio already has well, that stash? Well, uh, he is the incumbent governor. Uh, he, you know, he raised a lot of money during budget time, I'm sure, because there are a lot of constituency groups that want something out of the budget. Yeah. Uh, but... I frankly was not impressed with his fundraising effort. I, when he came in with four million on I hand, mean, yeah. I, I was expecting five or more, and so uh, that had to be. In fact, when I asked Kasich about it, he said, "I'm not impressed." And um, uh, I, I, you know, the governor's gone all over the country. We chronicled how many out-of-state fundraising events he's held there, like twenty of them or something like that. But. Uh, um, He's, I, I think he's going to have to step it up because Terry's right. Kasich's got a, through his Fox News contacts, has a, a national fundraising base. Joe Hallett, in your article this past week, Kasich said now he might consider expanding gambling, even though he criticized the governor for his change of heart on that. And he said my promise to eliminate the income tax wouldn't happen until a second term. Does that hurt his chances in arguing against Ted Strickland? You well, know, I think I think this whole income tax uh, phase out the income tax is a is a cockamamie idea anyway because <laughs> that's thir almost thirty five percent of the state budget. You do that, you're going to have to close schools all over the state and all that. And I think he's trying to look for a way to back away from it. Um, and the, the gambling thing, I, I really I just wanted to get him on record about where he is on that, and and maybe a, it tells us nothing more than he's going to take money from from casino interests. And my sense is Joe's article last Friday might have been the biggest one of the first six months besides Kasich getting in the race because it shows that Kasich's savvy enough not to do like Ken Blackwell, weight yourself down with an issue that could really hurt you as you move into the campaign. Emily, the economy likely will be the number one issue and these things will fall by the wayside, you'd think, anyway, in the voters' minds, anyway. Well, I would think so, too. And I, I feel like I say this every time I come on here, but it is so far away. I mean, it really is. I know that we all get psyched up about it, but it's really going to depend, I think, on what happens, you know, next summer, next September, next October. And, you know, Strickland may have not raised as much money because he was dealing with a bunch of other shenanigans, as well, far as I'm concerned. Yeah. That's a good uh, point. Yeah, you know, you're talking about this 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 slot proposal, and, and you know, I often think, too, that, politicians or you know anyone can say anything but until you are in that seat and you are facing the challenges and you look at the whole situation you have no idea what you would do and so it's easier for people to say what they would do and you know criticize other people but until you're there Michael how about Ted Strickland's director issues he's had several directors leave resign all fired however you want to call it. a lottery the, director left this week all at the same time um, does these things start to pile up and start to hurt him? I think they do, because I, I think that there does come a point where it just becomes about leadership, and you have to look at, for me, there's a variety of things here. Um, who's he going to choose as his running mate? That's going to be an interesting question, and I think that is going to have more to do with the election this year than it has, perhaps, in years past. Um, and then there is kind of one of those things that if you're the captain of a team and all of your star players start leaving, 
um, or getting indicted or fired, you have to kind of wonder what's the captain been doing. So I, do I think this is eventually going to come back? Yes, I really do. And I'll have to jump in as a Republican and agree that it does look bad. And we forgot Joe the plumber and his yes. uh, yeah. director there that had to leave uh, the personnel issues. But on the other hand, in defense of the governor, he's got time now to fix it before you get into the heart of the campaign. But and I these are real. Go ahead, I don't think he has too much time because I think this slot thing is really going to be the huge issue. And if you have no one at the ship that is supposed to have a plan in place in five weeks to bring in millions of dollars, that's a problem. I mean, I think you've just seen various department heads or whatever you want to call them, people in leadership positions, that have just made some really dumb choices. I mean, we had the lottery director who, you know, just out of the goodness of his heart mailed how many lottery tickets to the state police post for the policeman that just happened to stop him and not give him a ticket. I mean, mm. really, those kinds of things don't really help. And you're exactly right. The slots thing is going to be a big deal, and we have nobody there. To, to be the face of the issue. I think we could see this lottery contract blow up as potentially the first big scandal of the Strickland administration. The switch of vendors from GTEC to Interlot uh, did not go uh, without what appeared to be some shenanigans. So I was going to ask you, do these sort of transgressions that have led to these directors leaving, are they minor or are they major? You think that the lottery director one could, could turn yeah, out to be I a mean major? Yeah, I mean, there were a number of reasons that, I mean, Dolan resigned, but I, I suspect that the Strickland people asked him to resign because uh, he had a number of problems. He got stopped on 71 and, uh, and gave the uh, the troopers some uh, free lottery Promotional tickets. Promotional lottery tickets. And he got away with it. But Joe, in defense of the lottery director, he said under oath, that he had lied. So he was telling the truth under oath he that he said, had lied to the controlling board. Well, and, and he also said in a deposition that the Strickland, the governor's office told him to lie. And that's a problem for the governor's office. Somebody's got to, they've denied it. Yep. Apparently uh, those particular pages of how to govern from the Taft administration didn't get thrown away when <laughs> Ted moved in. Okay. Let's get to our last topic. The much anticipated voter reform package crafted by Democrats is out. Jennifer Bruner and House Democrats presented the plan this week. It shortens the early voting period from five weeks to three weeks, therefore eliminating the so-called golden week, those days when early voters could register and then cast ballots at the same time. It also allows counties to increase the number of early voting locations, and it would make what happened this week a thing of the past. It would eliminate special elections, making November and May the only times to cast ballots. Emily? Mm -hmm. How different is this from what the Republicans proposed back in January? You just read my mind. And I have to say I was very impressed with the timing of this, introducing a bill that does away with special elections on a special election After day. So they the get special, points yeah. for that. Does that <laughs> um, mean we don't pay the income tax in Columbus? No, you can't go that far yet, no. But this, I mean, you're right. It's a Democrat-sponsored bill. As far as I know, no Republicans have signed on yet. And a lot of the changes look similar to something that Senator Seitz had gotten through in the last GA but that Strickland had said, no, we're, we're rushing this, we're slowing it down, we're not going to do this. So, you know, maybe it makes it through the House, but what happens in the Senate? And if they can't reach uh, some sort of consensus, and you've got a lot of Republican senators that are not the biggest fans of Jennifer Bruner. So, you know, on that alone, do they hold it up? Do they change things around? I don't know. I think, it, I think it's going to be a tough battle for well, that. I think the two biggest, and having been on a Board of Elections for 14 years, uh, I can speak to it a little bit. The two biggest things that have the state Senate up in arms is it allows any nonprofit group like ACORN to issue voter ID that would entitle anybody holding that piece of paper 
to have voting rights, which is quite a radical departure from what we have right now. And the other thing is it takes a lot of power away from local boards of elections. And in Ohio, whether it's prosecutors, sheriffs, boards of elections, we've had a history of not wanting an omnipotent person in Columbus telling everybody in the 88 counties exactly what to do. But it, there's an argument by it would make the state more uniform and eliminate the differences from county to county. Isn't that our... Do we want one statewide school district and one statewide school superintendent telling everybody what to do? No. <laughs> well, when it comes to picking a governor or president, maybe s similar rules might be worthwhile. Uh, you know, the, the, the Republicans rolled out of a uh, bill after the last election and it passed both houses and the governor vetoed it said it hadn't been deliberated long enough. So now the Democrats roll out their bill. Uh, conceptually, they're trying to solve some of the same problems, and there is broad agreement on ending the so-called Golden Week and and um, stopping the partisan wrangling. You know, the, the, there's some pretty sweeping changes that need to be done. They're arguing over the over the details of things like uh, identity. Uh, the Republicans want you to prove uh, that you live in the in the precinct where you where you're voting. Yeah. Uh, the Democrats say all you have to do is produce two pieces of ID that show you are who you are. And um, provisional voting, the, uh, the Democrats want you to be able to vote provisionally anywhere in your county. The Republicans want you to be able to vote provisionally yeah. I only in your own precinct. But, you can so vote, but they wouldn't count yeah. the, the, the local issues. They only count the statewide or the, or the national issues. We're going to get to our off-the-record comments from our panel, some final thoughts, some predictions for the weeks ahead. Joe Hallett, you're up first. Well, if I might uh, promo my Sunday column, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> uh, Mary Taylor, uh, the Republican Party wonders what we should do about Mary, what they should do about Mary Taylor. She can't raise money. She doesn't like raising money. Uh, the party had to bail her out in 2006. Uh, her opponent already has twice as much in the bank as she does. So my prediction is that Mary Taylor will become John Kasich's running mate. Uh, she'd be a good running mate, and Josh Mandel, the Wonderkin fundraiser for the Republicans, will move into the auditor's slot. Okay, Emily. Well, I, we know that the governor needs to pick a running mate, and this is kind of going to play off what my, I think Michael's going to talk about, but I think he's going to use this process to kind of narrow the field on the Democratic side because he does have a problem with Bruner and Brown and Garrison now all there. So I think he's going to use this process to maybe choose one of them as his running mate, narrow the field a little bit more, and solve a problem kind of easily. Terry? I was going to predict what Michael's going to predict now, so I'll let him have his, <laughs> but I'm going to pick up on something that Emily mentioned. In five weeks, there won't be any millions of dollars coming in and licensing fees from the slots because the Lottery Commission, which has their next meeting on the 17th, hasn't even drafted the rules. So you can't expect people to pay money until you've got rules and go through the JCAR process. And Michael. And the prediction that everybody at the table has, the state Democratic Party has one heck of a problem with Jennifer Garrison getting into the Secretary of State's race. She's anti-choice, she's anti-GLBT, she's anti-worker, anti-minimum wage, and pro-gun. It'll be very interesting to see if the governor and the state chairman, Chris Redfern, can go back to those progressive constituencies with a straight face and ask for money, while at the same time backing a candidate who votes against all of those issues. All right. That is Columbus on the Record for this week. You can continue the conversation at our website, wosu.org slash cotr. There you can see streaming video of every one of these shows if you don't happen to stay up till midnight to watch us. Those of you who did, thanks for joining us. For our panel and for our crew, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week. <laughs>